Well, good morning. I hope everyone's doing well this morning. Enjoy the cool weather. It was nice and cool this morning. We are in Luke, beginning in chapter 20 this morning. So uh, let me... Let me open our, our time in prayer. Well, Father, we, uh, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that um, it's reliable. It's, it's something we can count on. And um, we thank you that for the finished work of Jesus Christ, that through his, his unselfish sacrifice, we can be forgiven. And I pray that um, your word would transform us now, um, change us, and glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, Jesus is is in Jerusalem now. It's what's commonly called the Passion Week. And um, I'm not real sure where that term came from. It there is a lot of passion in the week, but but it's also such a, a week of suffering and and pain for and agony for, for Jesus Christ. Um, he came in on what's commonly called Palm Sunday. We talked about that the last week, and he came into a to a joyful scene. You know, they're recognizing him, it appears, as, as the Messiah, the one who will come to save them. In fact, they, they chanted to him, Hosanna, which means save now. And, and they're, but as we talked about, I'm not sure they recognized what they were asking for. It appears they were seeking Salvation from Roman oppression more than, than anything else. So we'll get into to, to chapter 20 now. It continues in that, that Passion Week. So it says, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. So, what had Jesus just done in the temple? It was probably the day before. He flipped some, flipped some tables, right? You know, we commonly call it righteous indignation, where he expressed some emotion to the to what was going on in the temple. Um, the, the money changers were basically stealing from the people. Um, it's probably the day before. We don't know for sure. He'd driven them out. It was a very public challenge to the Jewish leader's authority. 
So what's he doing in the temple here? He's teaching. That's preaching the gospel. Um, I think he probably was drawing a large crowd. Because his influence is continuing to grow at this point. But the opposition is also growing. They're becoming more vocal and unfortunately more hostile. So who is it that challenges his authority? Yeah, it says the chief priest the scribes with the elders. What group does that make up? Basically the temple authorities, like all the religious authorities. It, yeah, she said the temple authority. It's called the Sanhedrin, is the kind of the governing, Jewish governing body. And these are the folks that make up, they're the primary participants in the Sanhedrin. At this point in time, um, it's thought that Gamaliel, Gamaliel, I think I said that right, was the the leader of the Sanhedrin. I'm sure you've heard that name before. He's the one that trained Paul. So he he was a very prominent leader. In fact, when, when Paul brought it up, it was kind of a, well, I was trained under, you know, it was, it was a very, he was a very prominent man. What are the sources of authority that Jesus could have answered? Where does authority come from? It can come from above, right? And where else can authority come from? from man, right? I mean, like, for example, um, the president of our country, he gets his authority from, from the people. Although some would argue that maybe he doesn't have that authority, but... So there's, you can either get human authority or divine authority is probably the two biggest answers. You could, you could maybe argue that, well, there's a satanic authority or something like that, but but I'll 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 leave that one out for now. So it's either human or divine authority. If he named human authority, if Jesus said, Well, I get my authority from humans, he's potentially in trouble, right? Because it would have created a confrontation probably with Rome, at least with the Sanhedrin, because they will say, well, you didn't get authority from us, and, and then he'd get challenged, well, did you get it from Rome? Well, no, they didn't give him authority. If he says divine authority, then they're going to they're gonna claim that's blasphemy, or at least a violation of, of their Jewish rules. So they've they've asked him a question to trap him. And he answered them, 
I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? How does he respond to their challenge? By the way, I wish I had his wisdom. As only he can do, he he responds with a question that turned the tables on them. He recognized their their trap and I'm not he's not going to give them anything to work with. He basically asks them, well, where did John get his authority? Was it divine or was it human? So he asked the same question that they had asked him. So they discussed it. Going on, it says, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So what's the discussion among the Jewish leaders? About the consequences of their answers rather than where John's authority actually, whence John's authority actually arose. Yeah. They were not going to answer the question. So they, and, and they gave, in their discussion, it gives the reasons why. That, okay, they recognize there's two sources of authority, being human or divine. And they, they said, okay, if we say divine, then we're condemning ourselves because, well, why didn't you believe John? And then if they respond human, then the people are going to revolt because they consider John to be a prophet. What happened when John baptized Jesus? This is a little memory test. There were at least three things happened. First, something visible. What was that? There was, the Holy Spirit came on him, and it says it was like a dove. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Um, Carson would probably be taking aim if it was a dove. But uh, it was visible is, is the point. And then there was something audible. Actually, two things were audible, but one was a supernatural audible event when God spoke, right? This is my son whom I am well pleased. And then listen to him, I think, if I remember right. And then John gave, spoke as well. John basically declared him to be the Messiah. 
So it was, a, it was quite an event. If they agreed that John had divine authority, which he obviously did, then they're basically saying, well, Jesus had divine authority. So they're not going to say that because they, they don't want to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah. Why would stoning be the response if they said human authority? It's actually from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13 calls for stoning of those who oppose a prophet. So if the people believed that John was a prophet and they disagree with him, then, okay, they're up for stoning. So... Both of these situations are what I'll call a dilemma. A dilemma is when you don't like either one of the choices that you have. Um, we often have dilemmas on election day. I really don't want to vote for either one of these, but you kind of have to pick the lesser of the evils sometimes. I need to stay out of politics. It's not, not good. But these guys are facing a dilemma. And so they basically respond that we're not going to say. We don't know where it came from. They're not willing to answer his question. They recognize that they'd be in trouble either answer they gave. So Jesus followed their example and, and refused to state the source of his authority. So it leaves them looking cowardly and without credibility. And then Jesus tells them a parable. He says, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Okay. So who's represented in this parable? We have a man... So it's, it's the owner of a vineyard. Who would that represent? God. Yes. God is the owner of the vineyard. So who's next? Well, okay, where, what's the vineyard? That's, that's one potential answer. Israel. 
Israel is, is what I was thinking. Um, so Israel is probably the vineyard. Because God had chosen them in the Old Testament. That's where that comes from. Um, who are the tenants? So, so it's the Jewish leaders, right? Yeah, the Jewish leaders are the are the tenants. So now you can kind of see where this is going. That it's not going to be a pretty picture for them. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants. So they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Who were the servants? So it's it's the Old Testament prophets, right? Numerous prophets were sent to the nation of Israel. Some while it was a united kingdom, and some when it was divided into Israel and Judah. Their message was clear. It was, for the most part, a call of repentance. Repentance from their idolatry. They had a huge problem with worshiping idols. It was... It was the idolatry that the Canaanites had practiced and they failed to to eliminate the Canaanites when they came into Israel, into the promised land. And as a result, they took on some of those Canaanite practices. And the only way that God broke them of it was to take them all into exile. And only a remnant were allowed to come back. So... The Old Testament prophets are the servants. God sent them to guide his people. It was a this call for repentance. Um, how were they treated? Not well, right? Um, some of them were just rejected. Some were physically beaten. You know, Jeremiah at one point was in stocks. Some were actually killed. It was not pretty. They were, they were mistreated. It's a rejection that they received by the majority of the nation of Israel. There was a remnant that, that followed them, but, but it was only a remnant. So what's the, the step the owner takes 
at the end. He's going to send his son. He thinks they'll respect him. Respect is, includes, it's recognizing the authority of that person. It's giving them a higher status than yourself. So it's, it's, it's recognizing who they come and treating them properly. And that's what he desired. It's what God desired when he sent his son. Was that people would recognize who he was. God wanted them to recognize him as the Messiah. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. How was this beloved son treated? Executed. <laughs> Basically executed, right. Which is exactly what happened to Jesus. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What did they do to Jesus? took him out of the city, right? And crucified him. This is an illustration of what happened to Jesus. You know, he was taken outside the city and crucified. I'm not sure how they expected to receive his inheritance. Um, the Jews expected God's blessing, so I think that's part of what this is talking about. Even though they're rejecting the Messiah, they expected God to bless them. So they thought maybe we can get the inheritance anyway. I don't know. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. So how does the owner in this parable respond to the killing of his son? Yeah, he holds them responsible for what they did. He, he kills the wicked tenants. And then he leases the vineyard to others. What, what would the audience think at this point? just with 
with ethnic Israel will get this land. And they're going, no, 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 God can't lease this land to somebody else. That's why they said, surely not. You can't mean that God's going to give our land to somebody else. They thought, no, there's no way that God would turn his back on us. They recognize they're the tenants in the parable, and they think it's inconceivable that God would replace them as his chosen people. So who would be the others that replaced the tenants? of Israel, it could be Israelites who are not religious leaders, or you could say that tenants refers to all of Israel, and that others then must refer to those who are not of Israel or be the Gentiles. Right. So if you take the second answer being, okay, it's basically all who believe, right? All who would receive Jesus as the Messiah would become the tenants. It's basically us. It's the church, right? I think that's probably what was was meant with the parable. Um, The church... It's, it's all who receive genuine faith in Christ. It includes Jews, but it, it also includes Gentiles, which I think most of us would be Gentiles. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What are the truths that he's emphasizing here? By the way, it's a quote from Psalm 118. What's a cornerstone? What's a cornerstone? What sets the, basically the foundation of the building. Yeah, so if you're building a wall, that first stone you put down on, the, on one of the corners, it sets the standard of what is going to be straight either direction. So it's, it's setting the standard for what the construction is going to look like. Um, he looked directly at them, so he, he's speaking specifically to those leaders. And he's challenging them to reconsider their rejection of him. 
He's alluding to the fact that he is the cornerstone. He's the reference piece around which the church will be built. And he goes on to tell them the implications if you reject the cornerstone. The stone crushes those who reject it. You know, some could make the argument that uh, the, the Jewish leaders were, they were just kind of pawns that God used to accomplish his plan. And you really can't blame them for what happened. And that's not true. Right here, Jesus is giving them a very significant warning. I believe they recognized that they were the tenants and if he's telling them, if you reject the son, you're going to be crushed by him. So they, they're being told that if you reject me as the Messiah, Jesus is telling them that. If you reject me as the Messiah, you're going to face God's judgment for it. That's a very deliberate warning that he's giving to them. It's a warning for us as well. And for those that are around us that don't know Christ. Those who reject Jesus as the Messiah, who don't believe that he's the Son of God, will face God's wrath for their sin. We wouldn't wish that on anyone, not, not our, our gravest enemy. We wouldn't, we don't want them to suffer God's wrath. It's, it's eternal separation from him. He's warning them to don't follow through on these violent plans that you have because it's going to lead to your eternal destruction. He's giving them the option of reconsidering their rejection of him as the Messiah. Okay, so what did, what did these leaders do next? Well, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So what's the approach they're going to take? Instead, they fear the people, and so they engage in this sort of 
secretive business of trying to catch Jesus without having to suffer um, for their convictions. Yeah. So their authority should have been coming from God if, as religious leaders, but they're recognizing that we want the support of the people because that's where we're getting that's where we're getting the support that we wanted. They wanted their status as as leaders, which was lining their pockets to continue. They liked their popularity, their even though they, they weren't leading well. So they wanted to physically assault Jesus. It says that. It said they sought to lay hands on him, but then, as you mentioned, they feared the people. So they were afraid to do it publicly. So they send spies. They're looking for something to report to the Romans to get him in trouble. Because they recognize if, well, if Rome takes him out, we're safe. We're not the, the bad guys in this. So these spies speak next. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So how do they begin their dialogue? They're flattering him, right? We know you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality. So they're flattering him, buttering him up, so to speak. So then they ask him a question, right? And this is another dilemma for Jesus. They basically ask him, should you pay taxes or not? Now, where it says, is it lawful, it could also be translated, is it right? or even permissible. They're trying to cause trouble for Jesus because what would happen if he said, yes, you should pay taxes? Well, then the Jews are going to say, well, you're colluding with the, the Romans against us. But if it says, well, no, you shouldn't pay taxes. Well, then they can go to the Romans and say, look, this guy is rebelling against us and you should arrest him. So either way, he's, if he answers yes or no, he's angered somebody.
But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Again, I, I wish I had a tenth of the wisdom that Jesus had. <laughs> to know how to answer this is incredible. What's his response? He's not going to allow them to trap him. He recognizes the trap. So he asks them, who's, who's on the coin? And when they say Caesar, he tells them to give to Caesar what is his and to God the things that belong to God. What biblical principles for money stewardship is he reinforcing here? Pay, yeah. I just helped Sharon with her taxes, so it's it's quick on her mind. Taxes, yeah. In fact, in in Romans thirteen, Paul reinforces that. We have an obligation to pay taxes, not overpay, but pay. But we also have an obligation to give to the church as well, to support the church with our, our offerings. And, and that's given in 2 Corinthians. Paul there says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't specify what that giving should look like. It just should, there should be some level of giving. It's an obligation that, that we have to support the church. Okay, what are a couple of principles from this week? Well, first of all, when we stand for God's truth, we're going to encounter opposition. So does that mean we shouldn't stand for truth? Well, no. But we should expect opposition. We should be ready. We should be prepared for the opposition. And then also, Jesus stayed focused on his mission despite the hostile opposition and the imminent suffering. Jesus knew what was going to happen to him in just a matter of days, that he was going to be beaten unmercifully and crucified. But despite that, he continued to teach, to preach the gospel, um, 
to engage with the opposition as needed. So what, how can we apply these? Well, how willing are you to stand for truth? Even if you know it's going to generate persecution, are you willing to stand for it? And then, what steps are you taking to finish strong in your Christian walk? Now, unfortunately, quite a few characters in the Bible did not finish strong. But it's a challenge for us to to not lose our faith, to not back away from standing for truth, even when we face opposition. We want to finish strong. Jesus is an exquisite example of that. Despite what he's going to go through, he continues to press forward toward the cross. He was determined to accomplish what his father called him to do, to finish strong. Any comments or questions? I guess I'm missing the, the, I understand what you're saying about what it means to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. What does it mean to render to God what is God's? I, the point I'm making is that to render to God what is God is to properly steward our money, and that includes giving to the church, is, is the point I was making out of that. So proper stewardship of our finances includes both taxes and offerings. In the context of the coin having Caesar's face on it, though, I'm struggling to understand how Jesus is talking about money when he says to render to God the things that are God's. Like I, I do agree with you and understand that it is a biblical principle of money stewardship to give right. to church. But I would wonder if perhaps in this context, I could be wrong here, Often am, but perhaps in this context, if if he's making the point that uh, giving money to the temple is actually not enough, that they have to actually render their hearts to God, especially in the context of the last parable that he told, um, where the tenants are going to be thrown out and others are going to be coming in and saying that the others coming right. in are those that have this parched faith. It could be more than just money. Um, my my reason for for focusing on money is because he chose a coin to show them, and so okay. you know that that was my rationale for that. Um, obviously, there's much more to the Christian life than how we handle our finances.
um, what we say and, and do with our lives is, is much more important than, than what we do with our money. But it's a good point, good point. Any other questions or comments? Let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he set the bar really high. He finished strong despite opposition and persecution that's beyond anything we could even imagine. He bore our sin. He paid the price so that we could be redeemed. Father, thank you for his example. and Help us to follow that example, to finish strong, to faithfully serve you in the face of opposition. We pray these things in the name of our risen Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Amen.